developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. This week we're hanging out with the writers Atessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel. Before we get started, I would love to tell you all about the Creative Confidence Clinic. This is my special Substack club for readers and writers. I'm sharing essays and practical and emotional hacks, tips and tricks. We've got masterclasses with some of my favourite creative people too. You can join the community on Substack if you'd like the full caboodle, including a discount on my next Write Like a Reader course, go to creativeconfidenceclinic.substack.com slash subscribe slash booked. Yes, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's so worth it because it gets you the half price offer and I'm only offering it to podcast listeners. I've got an exciting event coming in February. At the time of recording, dates and details are to be announced, but if you go to theyardhampshire.co.uk slash events, you may be able to see it. And if you'd like a personalised, signed, dedicated copy of my latest novel, Limelight, or any of my books, go to themargatebookshop.com and make your request on their contact page. They deliver nationwide. Now, on to today's guests. We're celebrating the film of Atessa Moshfeg's novel, Eileen. We talked to Atessa and her writing and real-life partner, Luke Goebel, about body horror, Atessa's hatred of Christmas, Guy de Maupassant, and calling up Kankisi for a chat. Enjoy. I wanted to ask you both, but um, Atessa, maybe you especially, making Eileen the movie, how did your relationship with your original text change? Did you feel differently about the book or see it in a different way as you brought it to the screen? I mean, I think I fell back in love with the book, to be honest. There was, there was a time after the book came out where I like really didn't want to think about it or touch it or look at it. And um, it was nice to pick it back up again and do it with um, new creative energy and also be on a team for the first time. And um, I don't know. I think I appreciated it in a new way without all the pressure of having already written it. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds quite joyous. Yeah. As much as that book can be joyous, yeah. which I think it is. I think it is so strangely exhilarating. Me too. Um, and Luke, how when you read Eileen for the first time, were you seeing it in a cinematic way or did that kind of change and evolve as you... Yeah, I was reading it in a cinematic sense, um, <clears throat> perspective. It's like one of those weird twists of fate. Um, I had read everything else by Otessa, and I had somehow been waiting to read Eileen. And then the kind of notion to adapt came to us both, and the opportunity happened, and I read it with that in mind. So um, I think it was like hiding from me, waiting for the mm. perfect moment, because it was fated for us to make this movie. And for some reason, I needed to encounter it at that very time for mm -hmm. the first time. 
There's a lot of magic around Otessa like that. Things just sort of have their <laughs> their natural way. Did you find out anything new about each other when you wrote this together? Because you've had a, a collaborative relationship for, for some time. I'm sure you've probably talked about that a lot today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd worked together on um, another film called Causeway. And... In general, our relationship has always been so much about our work and um, what we want from it that it was not a huge leap for us to work on Eileen, the screenplay, together. Um, but I mean, I think I. it's always kind of interesting when you see someone doing something you've never seen them do before. Yeah. So seeing... Luke working on Eileen, you know, everything that he added was unexpected to me because if it wasn't me coming up with it. So that was really exciting. And having um, having another perspective, someone who is also a fiction writer, which is really lucky, who can understand the challenge and special difference between a novel and a screenplay was really helpful. Curious about um, Luke's novel. When you read that, did you did you know each other already, or did you get to know each other kind of on the page? I had met. I think I was already engaged to Luke. Maybe when I read fourteen stories, or whatever. I knew I knew we were going to be together when I read it. Yeah. And uh, I met Otessa by interviewing her. So um, I had just read Homesick for Another World um, and showed up at her apartment to interview her about that book. Um, so, yeah, we've been collaborating in one way or another mm-hmm. from the moment we met. That was a conversation. That was a collaboration, you know, um, as all interviews are. So, But I just remember working on Eileen together as, like, being really exciting, it like was. showing each other new things that we could do having done this insane rewrite on Causeway in like a nine week period under a ton of pressure with filming being imminent um, it was such a like suddenly we had freedom mm-hmm. we weren't being told what to do uh, you know what I mean we didn't have a, a, a deadline like that um, it was totally ours with Will we'd kind of come up with the concept of the film and then we were writing and we were kind of just showing each other like well here's what here's what we can do you know um i think i've read that interview and one of the things i loved is sort of luke the way you talk quite explicitly about in homesick from another world and i i think as a reader and a fan i think it's a theme i don't know if you agree that there's a these books are very physical and all these stories about the the things our bodies do, the things that we maybe prefer not to talk about. And that, you know, I love that so much watching Eileen as well. That this is a woman who sweats, a woman who feels mm-hmm. uncomfortable in her clothes. You know exactly how that house smells as soon as you see it on screen. Mm-hmm. And it's not good. Um, <laughs> I'd love to know about other other novels, other stories that you have both enjoyed that have that same kind of slight, you know, physical sense of unease Luke you brought up the piano teacher earlier today and that's another book to film adaptation that really captured just like the 
uneasiness of the physicality of the protagonist and how uncomfortable it could make you um, for very different reasons, obviously, but I mean, just palpable. riffing Conception Days, isn't that Joanna Novak? Contradiction, Contradiction Days. Contradiction Days uh, is fairly bodily. I mean, Brad Easton Ellis has some fairly bodily in a different kind of vein. Like which book? Like um, American Psycho. Yeah. Some of the graphic physicality. Yeah, he his he kind of goes there in a and transgressive way. Yes, mm-hmm. his new book as well. Sexually, yeah. Um, I haven't read his new book. And he's a writer that I've got a really complicated relationship with because I read mm-hmm. him too early and right. I so mm-hmm. wanted to love him and be impressed by him. What I quite like about American Psycho, I think, is his horror of it and the I don't love the apologetic unapologetic misogyny, but the mm-hmm. the way he's about women and what their bodies do. I mm-hmm. think it's so frank and so it's I think it's interesting to read him now with, you know, writers like you guys who are something I think there's a a warmth to all the shit, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas in his books it's cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're uh, opposites in lots of ways. Patrick Bateman doesn't really have a lot of compassion (laughs) for his (laughs) subjects. Um, I wanted to ask about a a book list I read, um, and there's a book you recommended, and I cannot remember the title, but it sounded amazing. I think it's got hope in it, and it's a a nonfiction book, and it's a writer talking about living in Palestine and being on the left bank, and I thought that would be such a great book to read now, I guess. Oh, um, it's by Ben Ehrenreich, Mm -hmm. and it's called The Way to the Spring, I believe. Yeah, I mean, not to get into the current issue. Yes, it came out. um, We shared a a publisher, and so when I moved back to L.A., um, I published, oh, you should look up Ben Ehrenreich because he's living in L.A. He's since moved to Spain, um, but he became a really good friend. And actually, we rented out his office in L.A. Right. for quite a while, which was in this amazing part of town it's called right MacArthur, MacArthur Park. Park. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, we could never find that office again. It was just like a room on this really dilapidated floor of a medical building in the middle of this strange part of town. Yeah. Yeah, it was under 200 a month. It was great. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. And what's it like sharing that writing space? Um, it sounds like you must be able to be really relaxed with each other. Is one of you a faster writer? Are you kind of, do you harmonize? Do you get frustrated? Is there someone who's like the talker and someone who's Describe. I mean, I think basically, like, wouldn't you say that you're more of a extrovert than I am? Yeah, I generate the ectoplasm, <laughs> and she materializes it. I, I'm <laughs> Ghostbusters writing. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm more. I do most of my thinking live on the page. Uh, like, I find it very hard to write without actually composing. But Luke can do it, like, standing in a room, you know, just out loud in a way that is yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, generate, I'll generate dialogue and also f- kind of 
create and field concerns, like larger the, like thematic and theoretical and, and structural issues that need to be addressed and solved. And Otessa is amazing at action. She's also amazing at dialogue and rearranging, editing, putting things in different places. Um, we'll take turns. We both, you know, you share on final draft. You both yeah. have a computer. You both see the screen. But, you know, one person will take turns kind of in the lead as a writer or both are writing in different sections. Mm-hmm. It's always different. Yeah. With Eileen, it was like a trial by fire. Every single word had to be written, spoken aloud, and agreed on, or else it got cut, and then we did something else. Like, there was no sharing of, you write this part, I write this part. Yeah. It, was, it was all together. That makes so much sense, because I think in that world, so it's not typical, I think, to have a, a novel that has so much fullness and then see something on screen that's so full but also so so spare it's kind of a quiet film like there's not a ton of dialogue mm-hmm. you want though that sense of those spaces and those you know there's so much unspoken so you know it does absolutely see that every word had to count mm-hmm. yeah um, i wanted to ask you both about the first stories that you connected with who you were as young readers and you know the first, you know whether they were like novels or something else that just gave you the sense of kind of what a story could do and mm. the writers you wanted to become. Mm. Well, that's a really good question. I didn't realize that this answer was going to be controversial until I was at Stanford and I answered the question in a in a group of other writers and um, realized that I'm I have always been a writer who puts. Um, drama and language in front of content and like the actual story materials because the the short story that inspired me to be a short story writer was The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant which is about um, a middle class woman who wants to go to this ball basically and be the most beautiful woman there um, and she borrows a necklace from a wealthy girlfriend and goes to the party and has the time of her life with her husband. And afterwards, she loses the necklace and spends the rest of her life paying back the shop uh, from which she bought the replacement and never told her friend. And then there's this devastating ending where she finds out that actually the necklace was a fake. <gasps> at the very end and she's you know completely ruined herself having been a washerwoman for decades you know this young woman who had once been very lithe and beautiful is now this really calloused and heavy and angry resentful washerwoman um, who finds out at the very end of the story that her suffering was for nothing and I just that just blew me away but what I didn't realize was like if I shared that story today People have a lot of problems with it because it's a really not—it's not a very feminist story. It's sort of like looking at a woman in her most um, superficial uh, desires, you know. And van- it's about vanity, basically. It's very Thomas Hardy-esque as well, isn't it? Like really, mm-hmm. like punishing a woman. She just wanted to be seen mm-hmm. for one night, yeah. And she has to punish herself for the rest of her life. Do you know that story, *Invitation to the Waltz* by Rosamund Lehman? 
Oh, I think I read that a long time ago. It's very kind of classic English 30s, but about being 17 and pinning all of your hopes on a party. And half the book is the party. And it's that loss of innocence by realising how tawdry these people are and this sort of longing to thinking things are going to change and they change for her sister and not for her and I love those books and I love that so much and I think until really relatively recently for women in stories that was the only way you could travel like you we write about being seen and being beautiful in parties having your life changed by a party because that was the only way which I guess brings us back to Eileen yearning Mm -hmm. for escape and not knowing quite how that's going to come up right Uh, Luke I'd love to hear about your uh, my first I, thoughts of myself in relationship with writing was as a poet. So I was reading a lot of poetry when I was young. Um, and as far as, uh, I don't know, a formative experience, I guess, was I read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I had just moved to Portland, Oregon. So I called information, and I got Kesey's phone number, and we talked for like an hour on the phone. How old were you? I was 12. Oh, my God. What? That's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Can you remember... I remember exactly what he sounded like. Yeah, I remember the conversation. He was just like, well, I, first his wife answered the phone, Faye, and then she was like, called for Ken. And there's a young man on the phone for you. And he just goes like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, like, he talked for an hour, spiel. but he said three things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It took a long time for him to say anything. Yeah. Did you know what you wanted to ask him when you rang? Did you have... I didn't even know who he was. I mean, it wasn't until much later that I realized who he was as a counterculture figure or, you know, anything. I just had read, you know, the book and was like, I liked it. Um, Did he tell you anything about the book? He wanted to know what I thought a lot, which I like went on and on about. And then I was just like trying to see if he wanted to hang out. What did did you tell him? And did he want to hang out? (laughs) It was was a different time, but maybe not so different. You could, as an adult man, hang out with random people. I think you could. It was Portland. It was Portland in, like, Oregon in 1993. I think, yeah, and he was geezy. I think it was was game. Um, I just told him, you know, how much I liked it and what I liked about it and the character, the the fact that all the houses were the same, the conformity, you know, just, I don't know, stuff. I was I was very young. Well, you liked the conformity? Or I liked what he something? was saying about it. Okay. I could relate to it, you know. Uh-huh. The, yeah, I was, it was pretty, pretty pedestrian 12-year-old stuff. But I think that when you come to a book when you're 12, what's so great is you don't know or care what's pedestrian. Your experience of reading is so pure. You're not coming to it with a load of, like, this is what the critics thought. And that's something that... Um, not, I mean, I sound like a thousand years old about the trouble of writing today, <laughs> but I miss not knowing things about the culture I'm falling in love with. I hate the fact that I can talk myself out of going to see something or reading something accidentally because I've read nine pieces about it on Vulture. I'm like, oh, but everyone's problematic. And mm-hmm. having that, you know, being as ardent as you can when you're 12. Um, tell me about the poetry. Which poets were you reading? I mean, it's, it's sort of in those same veins, Ferlinghetti to, to Prima, like, you know, I was into, I was in that Pacific Northwest subculture. I just moved from Ohio from a little farm town and I hit Portland and it was just sort of, you know, the counterculture was still alive and buzzing and I was just kind of digging into what was available. And back that, were you going to libraries and bookstores? Yeah. And 
Yeah, and people were reading things, teachers, you know, little Marxist old teachers in Portland Public High Schools were introducing us to these things. I mean, that's all problematic now, too. It's like, oh, God. What? <laughs> the what is? The beats. I've never read any beat, beat anything. Right. Yeah, you shouldn't. It just never, it never um, appealed to me. Right. And it's mu- like the musicality of it, I felt like was so long-winded. Mm. I couldn't well, get into it. It's so funny that you said that <laughs> because I was thinking about how when I was reading the beats or trying to, I was also of an age where I was, you know, young and hanging out with boys and trying to pretend I like things like Metallica. Oh. And I think sometimes Jack Carrick has, oh, great, this is another song that's 14 minutes long. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say I ever tried to like Metallica. I feel like I would appreciate it more now. You would love Metallica. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't really <laughs> Maybe tried not. it. I don't know. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. We'll be back with Atessa and Luke soon. But now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen The Book of Delights by Ross Gay, a collection of daily essays written by the poet about the things that bring him joy watching a praying mantis scaling a pint glass, having his brother in law break a turtle out of his partner's father's garden jail seeing a stranger laughing at themselves after accidentally opening an umbrella indoors. This is a beautiful book about paying attention. If you're in a reading rut, starting your day with a few minutes of delight with Ross is a wonderful thing to do. The Book of Delight is published by Hodder and Stoughton and out now. Now, back to Atessa and Luke. I wanted to ask you both about how much you recommend books to each other and any books you've given each other as gifts and how that goes down, if you have similar tastes or if that's something that you're quite disparate in. I I think it's pretty disparate. I mean, sometimes we'll both be reading a book at the same time if we're considering it um, Mm -hmm. as a co-writing adaptation or something. But usually what happens is Luke will read something and uh, he'll talk about it and then I'll think okay maybe I'll read that when you're done and then I won't and if I'm reading something I'll kind of keep it a secret because whatever book Luke finds he will read and he's stolen a lot of books from me that way so I just uh keep it to myself read it on the sly Luke what have you stolen 
What have I stolen? Every every book, every book that comes to me. I mean, in the first mail. of all, a lot of books come to Otessa. You know, they're near daily deliveries of arcs of you know advanced reader copies. So I grab them all, and, and I never read them, them because I never have time. But you always read the beginning. Yeah, give a lecture. So, yeah, and that's about it. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, this has been consistent since. Um, I don't know, probably since grad school. I find it really hard to find the time to read. Um, and the older I get, the harder it is to use my eyes for that many hours a day. And mm-hmm. so by the day, you know, by the time I'm done with a day of writing, I can't read, really like, literally can't read. So it's, I'm more selective about what I do read. And I think as a result, I might be choosing books that are less difficult. Yeah, I mean, between, like right now we've got two screenplays that we just handed in, promoting Eileen. I've got a book that needs revision. You've got a book that needs written. It's like hard to find time. Can you talk about the screenplays that you've handed in, or is that all? Well, one of them is actually with um, the director of Eileen, Will Oldroyd, and... um, that's a really exciting project. It takes place here in the UK uh, during World War II, however. Yeah, we and can talk about that one. It's about a uh, psychic medium. A real-life um, psychic medium, Helen it's, Duncan. It's inspired by the true story of a woman named Helen Duncan who was um, a rare kind of medium in that she could materialize um, spirit outside of her with ectoplasm, speaking Ah. of which. And so, yeah, we've been thinking about that a lot. (laughs) Um, And she was um, kind of famous and infamous and was the last woman in England to ever be tried for witchcraft. And convicted. Yeah. So her her life is very interesting. Because she revealed a national secret about the HMS Hood being mm-hmm. sunk, and that was a, that was during the war. They didn't want that out. It was a strategical advantage for that to be kept secret, and she revealed it in a seance. But yes, yeah, she did materializations where she would either ectoplasm or cheesecloth, depending. Would you know these forms would billow out, and people would see in the red light faces of their loved ones, and yeah. you know it was a uh, part of the whole spiritualism craze. That is going to look incredible on screen. Yes. But I love that period. I love that movie. And again, I think it's another one of the few ways that women could kind of travel. Like mm-hmm. when, you know, we were not participating in the workforce, media was one of the few jobs we could do. And I often think as well about everything kind of in that area and how that's evolved and, you know, what wellness is now as well, which is. Oh, a nebulous term that means everything and nothing. I think, you know, maybe it's no wonder that women, especially over time, have been so drawn to that world because, you know, all so much in the way of like autonomy has been denied to us. So we're mm. like, yeah, I'll, I'll ask a ghost. <laughs> That's as good as anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is also just maybe one of the strengths that... Um, women have been able to hold on to, which is our intuition, Mm. um, but also got us into a lot of trouble, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
at the time of recording, um, we are we've just come off Halloween. We are coming up yeah. to Christmas. Um, I would love to talk to you about um, Christmas ghost stories, Halloween horror stories, um, festive books, spooky books, anything like that. Anything that really evokes that feeling of winter for you on the mm. page. Gosh, I mean, it's so funny. Although my I mean, Eileen, obviously, is a classic <laughs> Christmas book. Or oh, yeah. maybe you're not pairs well with Bad Santa in terms of like festival vibes. Right. No, I mean, it is kind of like a horrific Halloween-y Christmas book. I really don't care for the holidays. I mean, it's funny that I write so many books that center on Christmas because it's such a heavy and unpleasant time of year for me personally. I just always felt so trapped. I mean, if there's something about not being not going to school and I grew up in the northeast of the US where all winter there's just tons of snow. I mean, it's very hard to move around. I felt so trapped at home on Christmas vacation and it was like this prison time where I couldn't go anywhere and I just had to stay home with my family and it was supposed to be happy you know (laughs) like this was supposed to be a celebratory time not we weren't religious or anything like that um so I have strange associations with Christmas but I find holidays to be very useful in fiction because they are sort of imposed event that can come and be, I don't know, either interrupt a life or be something that a life is building up to, also the shared experience that we can all relate to in some way. I just finished a book that was um, for a possible IP, Where You End. It was... Where You End? uh, Yeah. And it had like weird, freaky Halloween cult vibes. and then, of course, you know the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the first Christmas Classic book. Classic Christmas book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you like being horrified as a reader? Do you find it easy to have that creepy feeling, or does it take a lot to move you in that way? Mm, I mean, the things that really horrify me are more believable phenomena, like aliens, things like that. Like, I've... Not that I think the idea of extraterrestrials is terrifying, but I think the literature around it is often very scary. In that interview, did you mention a book you read by a... Because I remember reading the word and kind of being like, ufologist? Ufologist? Like, how do you say that? But there was something... Ufologist. What, what was I talking about? There was one book I read recently... The Hunter of Wyoming. No, no, that was <laughs> that was such a strange book. My sister sent it to me. My sister is like kind of a scholar on UFOs and aliens, but she sent me a book that was like definitely a print-on-demand thing, written by the wife of a hunter in Wyoming who had a close encounter with aliens. Um, it's like this horrible book really badly written like the kind of bad writing that it's like the subject changes halfway through the sentence and you don't know what she's actually saying i thought it was just experimental no no <laughs> uh-uh it was an account of a, a, a close encounter 
But no, that wasn't it. It was something else. I do love the idea of taking that book and like sending it to Fitzcarraldo or somewhere <laughs> and be like, look, this is wild. I know. This is like, look it's this. winning the booker. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so, so experimental. It, yeah, it wasn't that what, good. What book on a UFOologist? I can't remember the title. It's a really famous book about aliens and how, well, not about aliens. It's about extraterrestrials who visit humans and the trauma cycle that occurs after, um, which is a real thing. I mean, whether it's really aliens or really some sort of sexual assault buried under um, a repressed story, who knows? It was very scary. I think Communion is the name of the book. Communion. That's a terrifying book. I like couldn't sleep. It was so scary. Yeah, I guess that that trauma is yeah. going to be the real result, whatever it yeah. is or isn't. Um, while we have time, I really wanted to talk to you about my year of rest and relaxation because that book, I would say, it comes up. Um, it's one of, there are certain books that come up all the time on this podcast that people love and that is one of the most regularly oh, wow. occurring and normally I mention it or someone else mentions it um, I love that it's so funny I think about Dr Tuttle at least once a week um, <laughs> me too I mean how do you feel about that because I'm also that's kind of my um, Atessa Moshevik gateway drug mm-hmm. book and what's your relationship like with that book is it something that people want to talk to you about a lot because I think it feels so in a way different from your other work and maybe the most kind of inner world that we recognize. Hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I think that book has reached a lot of people and I think that it holds some appeal perhaps because the main character is someone you don't mind relating to because she's so pretty. I always thought it was, for me, it was that universal fantasy. Who doesn't want to drug themselves <laughs> and wait, watch their life? I don't know. It's like um, that meme about um, sleep. It's a little death as a treat. Yeah, I think that's probably true, too. But the girl, the young girls that come to me and they say, like, oh, I discovered you through this book, aren't talking about sleep. They're talking about their unhappiness. And I think that it made that book made their unhappiness look attractive so that they could communicate it without shame. I think that's interesting. And I know I feel we've in literature, there's been this sad girl moment. And I I mean, I mostly read that book as being very, very funny. I don't know if that was the correct reading. Um, Do you think that's shifting? Do you think we're all kind of getting sick of ourselves or do you think that yeah. the um the kids on book talk are gonna keep this, this sad girl moment going I, I don't know I mean yeah I I, I I think it's generational this I think sat understanding satire takes a certain degree of maturity because you need to have hindsight and learn how not to take yourself so seriously which is really hard when you're like 17 you know um I definitely yeah, took you've myself just finished reading Kankisi in a very literal way <laughs> right so I, I mean I don't know the sad girl thing I, I don't I, I you know 
women don't identify as girls in my experience. Like I know when I was a girl and I know that I'm a woman now. So I'm not a sad girl. And I think that everyone will grow out of that. It makes me think of like Courtney Love and Kinderhall and the sort mm-hmm. of the, the riot girl movement, that sort of wanting to be, you don't have to take any responsibility for yourself if you brand yourself a girl and you're like, this is how vulnerable mm-hmm. I am. And I can see why now in a very, very frightening world that why why a person might cling to that, I suppose. Mm. That's terrifying. <laughs> Hold on. I I saw your movie and I can't believe you're saying I terrified you. That's nuts. (laughs) No, it's a terrifying idea that people would cling to uh, misery. As I mean, yeah, no, it's terrifying because people do it all the time. Like, oh, no, you don't ask anything of me. I'm too depressed. And it's like I think it's sort of like a second wave misogyny where women are like choosing to take themselves out of the running because they're so mentally unwell. I think it's really astute what you're saying, but I don't think it's necessarily limited to to women or women being girls. There's men who are boys who stayed perpetually adolescent and it's often entwined with addiction and counterculture and it's a way of being like I'm not I'm not joining the the troops. You're not getting my you know, enrollment or enlistment, like I'm out, like I'm staying here. I feel like there's a movement, at least in the in the states right now, where the male version of that is like becoming a mass shooter. Well, or in a lot more populations, larger numbers, people just staying home, not interacting, becoming depressed, asexual, mentally like internet Ill, addict. Like, yeah, just just re- re- retrieving, retreating rather into a, a state of of uh, inability to function. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I take the sad girl term very seriously because I really don't want girls to take a book that I wrote and use it to um, justify staying out. Um, of the world and being sad and limited in that way. I think that's really, really good point and really interesting, really complicated when it comes to that sort of, you know, Foucault and sort of who was the author and who who were people to tell you what your book is about. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. you know, it's not. Um, I was talking with a friend recently about horror, and when I was a kid, there was a real spate of kind of this film, this movie made these kids go and murder another kid mm-hmm. and ban this movie and it's all sticking to up. And I really, you know, when I was sort of seven or eight, I, you know, it was like the ring before the ring. I was like, if I see the wrong movie, I'm going to kill mm. someone. And mm. that sort of <laughs> mass light. And I, I don't know if, I think in the US and the UK, I think the sort of the tabloid cultures are a little different. I think they exist in both spaces. But I think here it's maybe somehow more vulgar and more universal I don't know mm. if that makes sense or if you agree but that sort of the way we're quite simplistic and again I, I think it's a something we do when we're younger as well you find the one thing and you're like that's me that's mm. who I am and forget that you know we we all contain multitudes and we need to we need to kind of expose ourselves to multitudes but yeah I was when you know I think um, Luke that's a brilliant point and I was trying to think what there must be those those books and those stories, I don't know if they are. I don't know if the, to use a 
horrible and offensive cliche, the guys who are living in their parents' basements are reading books in the way that the sad girls are. Mm-hmm. Is it hmm. diff- the sad boys? Are they looking what for different they things? I don't think they're reading novels. Mm. They're reading uh, 4chan. Is 4chan Yeah, 4chan. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. They're reading Simone de Beauvoir, thinking about being an incel. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever's happening, I have no idea. I'd feel a little better about the world <laughs> if the incels are reading Simone de Beauvoir. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> Could you, you reach them? Could you both maybe, I don't know, write write the, the incel novel that you know makes them like take wow. a shower and see daylight and be in the community? Um, that's kind of what I'm trying to do, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm working, no, I mean, no, I would never put it in those terms, but... Yes. I mean, I'm working on a novel that is very much about a young man who doesn't want to feel. And it is definitely not a, it's not a, like a depression or whatever you want to call it, um, is not gender specific. And being young is being young and having human feelings is overwhelming for all of us. So, Yeah, and those, those people sort of factor into my especially the culmination of my new novel that's, that's coming out this year. I mean, oh, that yeah. year. 2024, fall. Yeah, which is, it, it's practically the end of 2023, isn't it? Um, do you have a title? Can you tell us anything Yeah, it's about called it? Kill Dick. Great name. Thanks. Um, among other things, it's a revenge fantasy, but uh, it's, it's a lot of different things. It's a, it's, I mean, it, in a way, it's, it's a counterculture work that in some ways is addressing kind of why people are living in their basements, unable to function, yeah. I can't wait to read it. It sounds like what we all need right now. Um, Sadly, I think we're coming near the end. I'd love to know if I could give you, and this is a gift I can't give you, but I wish I could, if I could give you a month of of, um, rest and relaxation for reading, or, or sleep on drugs, if you like. But let's say reading for the purpose of the podcast. What books would you really like to go back to hmm. that you've loved if you had? Edith Wharton is an author whose novels I've started many times and then said, okay, I'll read, I'll read this for real um, when I can really dedicate myself to it. And so I've never finished a single one of her books, which is sad. I think I would probably just go read her. I love that. Have you read much Henry James? No. I kind of read them together and mm-hmm. they've both got that kind of vibe where it's all looks and subtext and no one ever says what they mean, but in mm-hmm. a really great way. And I often think that as well about Walton, who I read when I was a student and not really since, but I'd like to, to go back and um, I might read House of Mirth and Portrait of a Lady together. Exactly. I'd probably read all of Otessa's books. Again? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that is a very, like, break the internet answer. <laughs> you are... Is it Tom Hiddleston in the I Heart TS t-shirt? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Someone That's was right. just telling me about That's that. Right. I always get my celebrity Tom's confused. That was just last night. That was yeah. Thomason. Oh, yeah. Thomason, Thomason was, telling was telling us. Thomason was telling us that last night. Thomason is so good. I yeah. had never seen her work before, and her chemistry with um with Anne is sort of mesmeric I just I couldn't take my eyes off yeah. her and I loved her accent I thought and that sort of Massachusetts that you know sometimes a bit like Fargo where it's not the sort of as 
a, a dumb British person, you hear a very a fairly generic US accent, and that really kind of beyond outside the city anyway. But I just I thought she was incredible. Yeah, her, her yeah. and and I agree with you. Her Boston accent is really good. I've seen some people being critical of it, and mm. I think those people have probably never been to Boston. Yeah, they think that it's like the <laughs> stereotypical, like cliche mm. movie, like. You know, well, people think that the Matt Boston Damon or whatever is a Southie yeah. accent, accent. It's just not. And also, she's not in Boston. She's no. in coastal right. Massachusetts. Right. It's different. She is not parking her car right. in the yeah. Harvard yeah. Yard. Yeah, exactly. Right. Sorry, that was horrible. <laughs> Huge thanks to Atessa and Luke. Eileen is out on general release on the 1st of December. And the book is published by Vintage and out now. You can find a list of all the books Atessa and Luke mentioned at acars.com slash booked and shop a selection on our page at bookshop.org. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan. You can find us and follow us on social media at whybooked. And we really, really love and appreciate five-star reviews from our lovely listeners. It helps people to find us and it helps them find their new favourite book too. Finally, I leave you with this from Diana Vreeland. There's only one thing in life, and that's the continual renewal of inspiration. See you next time.